0: welcome to more devotedly a podcast for people who see the arts as a force for positive progressive change i'm douglas dietrich this is volume four episode five In July of 2020, the Native Arts and Cultures Foundation announced that beginning in 2021, ownership of the Yale Union Building, located in Portland, Oregon's inner southeast, would be transferred to the Native Arts and Culture Foundation, and the Yale Union organization will dissolve. At the heart of this transfer is the idea of repatriation, a reversal of the land theft that Indigenous Americans were systematically victimized by from first contact with European colonizers all the way to the present. Recognition of those transgressions is important, but the transfer shows that there are meaningful ways to heal some of those wounds that go beyond words. This land transfer will be an incredible investment in Indigenous artists for years to come, and that will benefit all Portlanders. As a nonprofit leader myself, I'm also struck by how this story shows. That a nonprofit's mission can be more important than its very existence. Nonprofits are so often chronically underfunded, but still burdened with high, often unreasonable expectations from funders. That fight just to exist becomes a mission all on its own. But it's important to remember that's not why we got into this work. Sometimes there may be a very good reason for an organization to no longer exist. Yale Union, an organization that is led by a desire to support artists, propose new modes of production, and stimulate the ongoing public discourse around art, decided that it could be best to pursue that mission by giving its most central asset to a Native-led organization. It's a remarkable recognition that even a mission that an organization has held dear for years, as Yale Union had in this case, isn't necessarily the only mission that matters. To learn more about the transfer and to talk about what it will mean for Native Arts and Culture Foundation, I spoke to Joy Harjo, who is the chair of the organization's Board of Directors and the Poet Laureate of the United States. We talked about this historic repatriation, about her role as Poet Laureate in a toxic time in American politics, and how she found her voice through poetry and music. Here's the episode. Joy Harjo, thank you so much for being on More Devotedly. There's been some exciting news. The Yale Union Building in in Portland, Oregon, was transferred to the Native Arts and Cultures Foundation. And you are the chair of the board of directors with that organization. And I just wanted to start with the most important thing. In your view, why is this significant?
1: I think it's really significant on so many levels. I don't know... In the, you know, even in U.S. nonprofit history, if there's ever been a building donated to an indigenous or native arts organization, I think this is a first. But it's so exciting about what it means for for local native arts as well as national and maybe even international. You know, and there's there's so much that could happen there in terms of shows and and um, meetings. All you know, it's 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 endless. You know the possibilities of what what could you know what could happen there because that that uh, building it has quite a history. But you know, it, it's really become a kind of community arts place. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And so that will you know that trajectory will kind of continue. The origination of Portland was you know there there were Native people that were living in that area, of course, um, and so this this idea of repatriating, recognizing that debt and giving back you know, in this way is, like you said, I can't find another example of it happening in this way.
1: I was just thinking of how this becomes an example of repatriation and I wish I had thought of it the other night when I was asked a question about repatriation for indigenous peoples and this is a perfect example. Of how repatriation happens.
0: What is something to you that is particularly exciting about this opportunity? You know, maybe for the artists that might have access to this space or perhaps for the organization.
1: I think of art as a coming together place, you know, even a work of art, whether it's a, a performance or some kind of, you know, event, live event, or music, or painting, or sculpture that brings people together you know with ideas and and sometimes you know when when the pandemic clears you know into a physical space to experience together so this building certainly is emblematic but it's a very real space and with different kinds of spaces in it for all kinds of collaborations and events to take place
0: Do you have any, any thoughts about perhaps why this moment? It's a very difficult time. It's a time of change. It's, there's pain. There's also rebirth. Kind of all of these things are happening right now, um, and, and this thing among them. And I'm curious does it take any special significance for this to be happening right now in this moment?
1: Well, in these kinds of moments of immense social transformation, we're challenged. We're being challenged. We've been challenged utterly on so many levels, you know, The with earth changes, climate change, governmental shift and, and chaos. The arts have always been those places. They're almost like transformer stations. <laughs> Think of a piece of art or even a art movements or even places like Black Mountain Institute, you know, Black right. Mountain, for instance, as they become transformers uh, of culture or transformers in times of shifts. And so I see the building has the potential to work like that, to be a, a, a place almost like a transformer station to uh, engender the production and the sharing of what is going to emerge from these times that we're all in because – fresh art blooms from these times of great challenge just like in a fire i mean there's these fires that have been going on too is that out of the ashes we'll see green emerge hmm. and uh and the ashes will feed you know will feed the earth and feed the plants
0: and you mentioned uh you know part of the excitement of this event is that it sets an example um and so i wanted to kind of follow up on that again you know this is what could be the first of of you know more types of transfers of of property of capital in the future and what of this do you think is a model you know what do you think other organizations or perhaps other folks that have a building that they you know that they might be able to give to an organization what do you think there is to learn from this
1: as you were speaking i was thinking way back to the late 60s when You know, the Alcatraz, (laughs) that prison was just sitting there. And I think it had been written into um, that contract or there was something that had, you know, it's, uh, I don't recall right now. It's something in a federal law that actually it was written in that natives could use that or take Hmm. over, you know, use it after and then the government blocked that. But I like the idea of repatriation. I mean, there's so many different kinds of moves and shifts that could happen. With repatriation, there's so much could happen there. It's ultimately about sharing, you know, or giving back.
0: As we're talking a bit about what's happening right now, and some people are struggling to make sense of the moment, some people are looking to see what they can do to pursue their ideals and and changes that they would like to see. Um, There are also people that are opportunistically capitalizing on on divisions and things that are becoming even more intense during this time. And so you are the Poet Laureate of the United States. And I wanted to ask you about, you know, how do you see your role as poet laureate in a moment like this?
1: My position, it's an honorary position. I see it as a service position. So I represent poetry and make um you know help make the public aware of poetry. And it's certainly times like this that we need what poetry provides, you know, an inspiration, uh, ways to speak that are not polarized, and ways to speak and be, you know, past the the, the rhetoric and the hate to uh, bring people together and to celebrate, you know, to celebrate poetry and the contributions of poets. So, you know, I certainly being a poet laureate during this time has been, It's been a little strange because one, we can't go anywhere, right? (laughs) Except by by video, we're we're limited, and even politically, we become limited. You know, it's it's it is such a strange time. Um, so like any poet, like any artist, you know, we have a responsibility to be truth tellers and to keep our eyes, our ears, our hearts, our minds on. Uh, a way to keep moving forward, to inspire, to inspire cohesion and connection, in a time in which there are attempts to divide us, to destroy and to steal. I mean, right. that's that, that's at the core of what's going on. What's at the core is an immense greed and a disrespect and disregard for other people, for the earth, for the sacredness of life. Mm.
0: This is a question you can answer or not. You mentioned um, climate change. While well, the president has disregarded climate change, as an artist, you, you speak your mind. And so I'm, I'm just curious, how at liberty do you feel in this position, um, kind of in this moment? And, and how does that relate you know, to that interest in trying to bring people together?
1: I was told that I I can put anything in a poem. And during this pandemic, I have been writing a memoir. But it's it's sort of like looking back and looking at, you know, going through generations and seeing how the indigenous people have been through pandemics. We've been through major, you know, land theft, attempts to destroy us and culture and sort of like what the whole world's going through right now. And so I'm able to comment and move in that. In that form, in that format, in that form, the book uh, will be out next fall. It's called Poet Warrior, A Call for Love and Justice. So that's how I'm maneuvering, trying to keep eternity in mind because these things change. They will change. And, you know, it's important that every you know, that we all get out to vote. Mm-hmm. It's important that we all have our voices, that we speak and that we are heard and uh, we trust what we're seeing, that we're seeing what we're seeing. Yeah. That we that we trust that we hear what we're hearing and not to be fooled by fake news and the attempts to to divide and to destroy.
0: Hearing that those things from you about poetry and as well for you, music, giving a voice and giving an opportunity to express oneself, I wanted to ask you about how you got into doing what you do as a poet and as a musician and how did poetry and how did words and how did music create that opportunity for you to find a voice to express that and then to use that to bring people together?
1: I came to poetry through my mother's songwriting and she loved poetry and uh, but I walked away from music when I was in junior high and for a number of reasons that I talk about in my new memoir, and, and um, I just started writing poetry when I was like in my mid twenties, and I didn't start playing music until I was in my almost forty. I got my band Joy Arjo and Poetic Justice together. All of my band then was Native Attorneys. <laughs> so Poetic Justice.
0: <laughs> yeah. Nice.
1: Was a good was a good name. It was a good name for the band, but. And then I've had other bands since. I, I, I usually call it the Aerodynamics, A-R-R-O-W Dynamics Band and play with, you know, whoever I pulled together. But I've played a lot with Larry Mitchell and, and um, a core group, Robert Mueller and Howard Bass and so on.
0: So this was something that I read in, in, in an article with NPR. But you mentioned a story that I think that I believe is also in the memoir as well. So you mentioned a story about listening to Miles Davis. My ears uh, perked up a lot to that too because I'm I'm a jazz musician and a trumpet player, kind of in my well almost a previous life. Because now I'm producing a podcast and creating a lot of music kind of electronically and not playing the trumpet as much as I used to. But um, for me, it spoke to me a lot because of that experience was was very similar for me, that listening to Miles Davis and his just his attitude towards music and the way he played the trumpet and the way he led his groups was really inspirational for me. Um and you know, I was just I was just curious about that inspiration in particular, or maybe if there are others that are, you know, feeling perhaps more significant right now. How do those motivations keep you motivated to do what you're doing?
1: Well, I remember getting to hear Gil Scott Heron years ago in Santa Fe uh, and I thought whoa he's doing kind of what I want to do with poetry and music and I've been recording a new album with Barrett Martin and um, I finally I feel like this album is in the pocket it's like finally you know there's the poetry there's the music there's some, there's singing I play sax it's very jazzy and yet very it's just what I I've always done my own thing Mm-hmm. but miles of course I, I i have a little story it's at the beginning of my last memoir crazy brave about uh, how i had a trans one of those transcendent moments when i was before i could really speak very well and i was listening to the radio we were driving somewhere in the car and it was miles davis's horn and it was i don't know i say transcendent well i talk about i you know, I try to describe it in that little piece I wrote. But I've always been deeply moved by jazz. I grew up with my mother who was a singer and wrote songs. And we had country swing musicians at our home. And I heard her sing. And so I grew up in that kind of atmosphere. And then when I came to music later on, it was like, oh, my gosh, I'm too old. And it's like I couldn't listen to them. It's like becoming a poet, you know, people... I was not encouraged to become a poet at all. You know, it's like, you got kids, how are you going to make all of that? And, um, you know, I started playing sax when I was almost 40. But I love the music. What I love about jazz is that it enables me to travel in a way that... And there's a way to travel and improv in it that is unlike any other kind of music that... You can improv. I mean, country swing is the best of it. Is is um, you know is is thick with improv. Sure. The yeah. same with a lot of Middle Eastern music and so on. But I, I you know, and I want to add that our southeastern native people are part of the origin story of jazz and blues.
0: I would love Combo to hear more Square, about that.
1: Yeah. Square was a, a Muskogean village. Hmm. And it, you don't know, you know, that story's left out. So after I get this memoir out and and this album, my project before I disappear to paint <laughs> again <laughs> is a musical. That uh, musical that tells that story through a young band in Tulsa.
0: Oh wow! Has that been premiered yet?
1: No, no. I'm, okay. in, I'm going to go into revisions as soon as I get all this other stuff in.
0: Great. Well, I would love to hear more about that. It sounds like a, you know, a fascinating connection. I find that, um, you know, in in jazz history, just like in most, you know, most views of history that people have, and, and I'm sure poetry is similar, that there's kind of a, you know, there becomes like a prevailing narrative that most people just kind of accept without thinking about it. And, and there's almost always more to the story. So you know, just revealing that part of history, um, you know, both for jazz, but also, you know, with indigenous people is 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 great to, do, to hear. As you were talking about your mother, I, there was just one last thing that I wanted to ask you before we go. And that was just this idea of standing on the shoulders of giants, this lineage that we all, you know, you might have it um, by blood, like you have with your mother, and you might have it just by an experience like you have with Miles Davis, I would say. I was really curious about your mother and about how how did she pave the way for you? Do you feel that she did? How did that happen? And, you know, what, what do you feel is there?
1: Well, she gave up a lot of that. She wound up, she was writing, uh, when I was really small, she was, and there were just two children, she wound up with four children. She was recording demos. Ernie Fields, who was, um, you know, he had a big jazz band. He took one of her songs and did a cover of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she was thick in the business. And then one of her songs got stolen. And, and I don't know which one it was, but it became a Johnny Mathis hit. I'm not saying he stole it. It's just that somebody stole it and people would get songs and, you know, mm-hmm. shop them to people. So, yeah. so she had children. She had two more children. She wound up in a divorce. And... You know her music, her music fell away. I have, in a, I have a folder of songs that she wrote on on the backs of envelopes, and she always said, "I can always recognize a hit."
0: Hmm. Yeah, that must have been um, devastating for her to hear it. I'm sure she heard it on the radio, or eventually. Yeah. You know.
1: I think about that, though, and I think about um, yeah, because she was sending off to music publishers that you know in the backs of magazines. So, right. sending just sending her work out like that, which is not a good idea for anybody out there. Just your, <laughs> keep that in work mind. Out yeah, to amuse it. Yes, keep that. You know, because without getting it, without copywriting it, and even then, you know, it gets tricky. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, Joy, I I have really appreciated talking to you. That idea of passing on a legacy and building for the future finding ways for more people to find their voice and especially for indigenous folks um you know and and your mother did that for you in 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 some ways and and nacf uh native arts and cultures foundation uh will be doing that even more in portland and i'm and i'm really looking forward to that um i run a arts nonprofit in in portland as well portland jazz composers ensemble and so oh cool yeah so i'm i'm Looking forward to seeing kind of the growth with um, NACF in Portland and and just excited for them to be, I mean, I guess they're coming across the river from Vancouver, but, uh, you know to come a little closer to us here so i appreciate that and and i'm excited very excited for it and very inspired to hear about this news and and uh,
1: yeah well i look forward to seeing you at the opening whenever you know the (laughs) the physical opening whenever that might be yeah
0: absolutely i'm on the email list with nacs so i'm sure i'll hear about it and hopefully can be there in person and maybe we can meet in person someday when the apocalypse is over and and all that so Okay. Great, but well, thank you, Joy. I I really appreciate your time, and and thank you so much.
1: Okay, thank you.
0: All Take right, bye bye. Thanks so much, Joy. Folks, we're just about one month away from the 2020 elections. Are you registered to vote? Do you have a plan to vote so you're safe and your vote is counted? It's time to cast your vote in the most important election ever for every single issue that progressives care about. Please vote Biden-Harris and Democrats up and down the ticket so we can restore our democracy and make this country work for everyone. If you like what you heard on this podcast, please make sure you are subscribed on your podcast app to hear the next episode. An interview with Joni Renee Whitworth, a poet and executive director of the queer arts organization Future Prairie. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere that fine podcasts are distributed. You can hear from me a little bit more often via social media. Search for more devotedly in Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can join my email list at MoreDevotedly.com I'm Douglas Dietrich and I produced this episode and composed and performed the music right here in Portland, Oregon. What you're doing is beautiful. Can you do it more devotedly?